What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney David Ramey is the owner of Ramey Vineyards which he started with his wife Carla in 1996 he is one of California's most impressive winemaker resumes and shares many of his experiences on this episode. Fresh out of UC Davis and with an internship at Jean-Pierre Mouet's Chateau Petrus under his belt, David started his winemaking career in 1980 as an assistant to Zelma Long at Simi Winery. He subsequently became chief winemaker at Matanzas Creek and then Chalk Hill before taking on the task of winemaking and building the new winery at Dominus. He later helped rebuild and replant what had been Girard Winery into Red Estate as well. David is a legend in the winemaking industry and shares his entrepreneurial journey on this episode of What Got You There. If you're like me and love to travel, then listen up. Are you looking to get outside your comfort zone in 2018? Are you tired of the monotony of your nine to five job with no adventure? Do you want to connect with new people on Epic Adventures? If so, then Globekick is what you're looking for. Globekick is redefining travel for the millennial generation. Globekick knows that memorable travel is built on the quality of the experience you have and the people you connect with along the way. That's why their members can choose from curated travel experiences throughout the year with like-minded people. Unlike other travel providers, Globekick members get to know each other through a private social network before choosing when and where they travel together. In 2018, they've teamed up with partners around the world to feature a Sahara Desert camping trip out of Morocco in May, a boating journey through the San Blas Islands in the Caribbean in August, and a volunteering trip to an elephant sanctuary outside of Cambodia in December. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then head to globekick.com and enter WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. That's globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. David, thank you for joining us on What Got You There. How are you doing today? Well, good, Sean. Uh, we uh, saw the Giants win a ball game yesterday in San Francisco, so, um, you know, it was a good day. And, and- <laughs> And so far, it's starting out a good day with you, too. Oh, yeah. So you, so you mentioned the sports industry. Uh, any other teams or sports you, you follow closely? No, the, the, the Giants, it's pretty much baseball um, and, the, and the Giants. Uh, my family and I moved to the Bay Area in, in 1958, the same year that the Giants moved from um, New York uh, to San Francisco. So we've uh, grown up in the Bay Area together. So, I mean, you mentioned growing up in the Bay Area. I've heard you talk before. You grew up in the Silicon Valley area. Did you go to school with uh, Steve Wozniak? Oh, that's exactly <laughs> right. Yeah. I went to school with Steve from third grade through 12th grade. And um, apparently, uh, Jobs was two classes behind us at, at Homestead High. But, you know, there were 2,600 people in, in that school. So I, I didn't, I never knew him or met him. But, but yeah, Steve was the, uh, from third grade on, it, it, like in elementary school, he was the guy that won the science fair every year. <laughs> I mean, I've got to ask, what were they feeding you kids at lunchtime with two titans of industry coming out of that school? <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's you know, pretty it, remarkable. It's, it's funny. Um, there is a, I mean, uh, you know, what, what, the basic story of, of Santa Clara Valley, which it was before it became Silicon Valley, is it when we moved there, it was all orchards. It was it was cherries and uh, apricots and prunes and uh, some walnuts a little closer to Santa, Santa Clara. Um, and um, 
you know, I just watched it get paved over and, and agriculture uh, lost out to houses because those are all commodity crops. Um, and, and now we're seeing the same pressures in, in um, Sonoma County and in Napa, um, but it's, it's a little different. You know, these are uh, retirees, wealthy retirees coming to wine country um, and, and then building houses on uh, ag-zoned land. And, um, you know, the only thing that keeps Sonoma County and Napa in agriculture is the value-added proposition of wine because commodity crops can't compete with houses. So anyway, I, I, you, I kind of went off on that because as, as um, you brought up Sunnyvale, and that's, I, I think about that a lot these days, um, the, the, the shift from ag to residential in both areas. I mean, when you were growing up, it seems like you really appreciated agriculture from a young age. Is that true? I, I wish I could say so, but I, I, that's not true. Uh, I do now um, because uh, it feeds people or, well, wine has nutritional value. But, you know, I became a winemaker in part because it makes people happy, you know. And um, I mean, cherries and apricots make people happy, too, but a little less so than I a couple of glasses of wine with dinner. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's anything more enjoyable than a nice glass of wine to to end the day. So you've talked about wine a little bit here. How did you first really truly become involved with wine? Well, I, I went um, for a, a quarter. I was at UC Santa Cruz and I went for a quarter um, to Spain uh, and took classes there. And that's when I, I really um, started, uh, you know, you, just, you drink wine with with everything in those days, that was 1971. The, the house I was staying at, which was a fairly wealthy uh, couple, the, a dentist, and they, the maid would set breakfast out for me every morning, and it included a glass of red wine. It's um, <laughs> a good way to start the day. <laughs> and then, and then, um, uh, one quarter, I did an intercampus visitation from Santa Cruz to UC Berkeley, and I ended up. Uh, renting a room essentially or staying in, in the home of the mother of a classmate from Santa Cruz who worked uh, with UC Berkeley and had a, a an inter, had lived in Japan, had an international cast of, of friends, national ge geographic photographers and, uh, you know, scientists from UC Berkeley and, and would basically have soirees, uh, you know, in the evening up in the home in El Cerrito Hills with big picture windows overlooking San Francisco and the Bay Bridge and the lights. And and to, to realize that, you know, because of wine and food, that you could have a three-hour dinner with somebody that you hadn't even met before and have all sorts of philosophical, philosophical conversations, that was, that was remarkable to me because uh, my, my folks have passed on now, but I was an only child and, and, and they weren't particularly communicative. Dinner was at six every night and it lasted about 20 minutes and the three of us would sit there. Sometimes there was no conversation. And so when I discovered that wine sort of uh, facilitated, sort of lubricated the tongue, um, I thought, well, this is a really good thing. <laughs> <laughs> So what was your next transition then? I mean, it's one thing to go to school, but I mean, you fully dove all in and, and completely became entrenched with the wine community and, and really studying the craft, right? Well, yeah, you know, I was on my way. 
when I got out of Santa Cruz, I was a waiter for a year in Los Altos, so back near home, near where I grew up, um, at a at a Sicilian restaurant, and um, and then I, I left. At that point, honestly, I mean my 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 degree was in American literature, um, American studies, uh, but I, I had no professional goals. I I didn't know what I wanted to do, except I I was committed. I wanted to teach English in a I wanted to support myself in a foreign country for for a couple of years, um, and I because I had some Spanish at that point, I I chose um, Colombia. Uh, this was before the cocaine wars, <laughs> seven before, <laughs> and and so I was I was driving. It was a long drive uh, between uh, Mexicali and Hermosillo in my '71 uh, Toyota Hilux pickup truck with no radio, and so just just me and the saguaro. And I'm thinking, well, okay, but what am I going to do when I'm done with this? And it was like, in, in French, you call it a coup de foudre, a, a lightning bolt, an inspiration. Uh, why not make wine? Makes people happy. Uh, it's an aesthetic statement, you know, like a product, like a movie or a, or a novel. Um, and it, it's not bad for the environment. Um, this was the first wave of environmentalism, you know, in the, in the 70s. It's, it's back now which is a good thing. Um, and I continued on, and I, I, I had, I, I'd actually, well, I forget exactly. I was down, down and back twice, and um, I ended up, the second time was just two weeks, and I ended up, I turned around, and I was home after Christmas, and by um, whatever, January 20th, I was enrolled at, in Chem 1A and Biology 1 and Algebra, at, at San Jose State, um, Davis wouldn't let me in. I didn't. I didn't know that you could get a master of science without a bachelor of science. Nobody explained that to me. And it turns out you can if you have all the science. So anyway, Davis said, "Go get your science someplace else." So I spent three semesters at at um, San Jose State, and then and then transferred into Davis to the graduate program there, and spent three years at Davis. So yeah, it took me four and a half years from Chem One A through the MS in enology. But you know. Thank God. I mean, I wasn't doing anything else. And if, if, if it hadn't been for wine, you know, I don't know. I don't know what I would have done in life. So, I mean, what, what words do you think you'd use to describe your winemaking process? Um, oh, the first thing that comes to mind, Sean, is uh, let nature do the work. Hmm. Um, you know, uh, nature's been making wine for 8,000 years before enologists showed up. So we use we use native yeast, we use native bacteria, and we don't own a filter. So we're making wine the way it was done 150 years ago to a large extent. Now we have much better instrumentation. Um, and uh, sometimes I say that, uh, you know, I'm analogized to being uh, flying an airplane that, uh, you know, a good pilot uh, can fly by sight, but you like to have the instrumentation. Hmm. And so we, we have, a fairly sophisticated laboratory. We we analyze everything about our wines, and what's a lot of times fun is other people's wines too. So we, <laughs> it's sort of like having X-ray spectacles. You get to see uh, what other people are doing, um, but mostly we we just bring in the grapes and we add a a little bit of SO2, and then nature takes over letting nature do the work, that approach, do you think you would have been like that 
just based on on where you grew up, or do you think it was your time in France that led to that as well? It was my time in France. Yeah, I mean, no, number one, I mean, you know, God bless UC Davis, and and I, you know, in effect, I I owe my career uh, to them. But nobody learns to make wine at, at UC Davis, and enology uh, professors the the world over really are. Um, they approach winemaking like food processing and, and, and want to control every aspect of it. So um, there's, a, there's a, a leap of faith in trusting nature. It takes a certain amount of experience. And no, I don't think without my time in France that I would have gained the confidence to trust nature. So, I mean, some of the listeners might not be so familiar with wine. Can you set the context on, on who exactly you were basically studying under during your time in France there? Well, I worked twice with uh, Etablissement Jean-Pierre Mouex in Pomerol in Bordeaux. So right bank, uh, Pomerol next to Saint-Emilion. And um, at the time, both years, uh, the Mouex organization um, which was founded by Jean-Pierre Mouex and then managed by his son, Christian Mouex, owned or managed maybe, I don't know, 25 uh, chateaux, so-called, a little different labels in Pomerol and Saint-Emilion and at, at the time in Fronsac. Um, so Chateau Petrus being the most famous one, uh, La Fleur Petrus, uh, Magdalene, Fon Roc, uh, Trentenois, um, Feti Clinet, uh, La Tour of Pomerol. So uh, in uh, in 79, I, fresh out of Davis, I, I went there and, and did basic cellar work, pump, mostly pumping over. It was all red wine, um, pumping over and, and then shoveling out tanks. Um, and then Christian uh, decided it would be interesting for us to work together. So he asked me back in 89 in a different capacity. And then I I, uh, I drove around with him and, with, and principally with Jean-Claude Barraway, the longtime enologist there. And I would say that, um, yeah, I learned how to make red wine from, from uh, Jean-Claude Jean Barraway and, and Christian. I mean, I, I can only imagine it. It's 79. This California kid shows up to France. I mean, what, what were you thinking day one? Did you understand who exactly you were getting to work with? And then also, what did you do so well that 10 years later, Christian wants you to come back? I mean, you must have left quite an impression on him. <laughs> oh, I can't answer that. that. <laughs> but I will tell you, I mean, it, it, it's kind of a funny story. I asked the professors uh, for names of, of um, you know, producers in in. Uh, well, the first question was Burgundy or Bordeaux, Burgundy or Bordeaux, and I settled on Bordeaux. And so I asked Ralph Kunke, I asked Maynard Amarine, who was emeritus, but would come over uh, once a year to, to lecture us uh, for names in, in France, in Bordeaux. And I, I still remember in, in my um, very rudimentary French two, I wrote a, a, a letter asking for a harvest job to 14 producers. I remember one was made de Cassang of uh, Pichon Lalonde. And I got um, seven, seven people didn't respond at all. Seven did. And of those seven, I got six no's and one yes. And the one yes from Christian Mouex. Um, and, you know, two things. One, no. Of course, I didn't have as much appreciation for the, that, um, uh, that establishment as I do now. But also in, 
1979, it, wine wasn't the, the big thing that it's become. Chateau Petrus was not as famous. Um, you know, 79, in, in the 70s, wine, wine just was just starting to take off, really. Uh, not, not only, especially in the United States, but also, I think, internationally, you know, um, uh, and, and, and Bordeaux went through, through some, uh, some tough times, I think, in the, in the 70s, uh, financially. It seems hard to believe now, but it, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> so then what brought you back to the States? Oh, well, you know, I mean, I'm sort of a serial. I've, I've, I've lived three months in Spain, three months in Australia, three months in Mexico, three months in France twice. And, um, you know, after about three months, I, I, I started longing for, um, you know, peanut butter and, and uh, <laughs> you know, good old American food. I don't think I don't think I could live uh, forever, you know. So. So, yeah, basically, I, I grew up in the Bay Area. I love the Bay Area. I've been in Sonoma County now for 40 years, and it's the, I mean, I can't think of a better place. I, I know there must be equivalently fantastic places to live, but as far as I'm concerned, and my wife Carla and, and my kids who went out of state to college and then came back and live with us now in Sonoma County and joined the company, uh, Sonoma County is just a, I mean, I, I can't imagine living any place else. I mean, so what really led you up to 1996 when, when you and your wife, Carla, you guys started Remy Wine Cellars? I mean, what really led to that? Well, you know, it's, it's funny. I mean, it, it was Christian because when he was trying to get me to leave Chalk Hill to, um, to manage Dominus and, and be in charge of getting the building built and be the, you know, the, the general manager there and winemaker, I, I raised some objections. I said, you know, oh, you can't afford me. Um, you know, he said, no, we'll take care of that. I said, you don't have a winery because they had been custom crushing at Rombauer. I said, no, he said, we're going to build a winery. You'll be in charge of that. That's, and then I said, but Christian, you don't, you don't make any white wine. And, and he said, well, you want to make a little Chardonnay on the side? That's okay. And, and, you know, like a light bulb went off. It was like, I had, I, at, at Matanzas, at Simi, Matanzas Creek, Chalk Hill, I'd always invested so much in the job that the idea of a little side project, as, as, as we thought of it at that time, just it never occurred to me. But, you know, it was like, oh, yeah, I can do that. I know how to do that. And so I, I, we started with, uh, I knew Larry Hyde from uh, Matanzas Creek. I had bought his semion to go into the uh, Matanzas Creek Sauvignon Blanc. And, and he... Um, he found a little bit of Chardonnay for us. And so we started uh, with the 1996 vintage with um, with 260 cases of Hyde Vineyard Chardonnay. That's quite a story how, I mean, 260 year one and, and then where you guys are at now. And, and funny side note, so when I was preparing for our conversation here, uh, I didn't at first understand the years where you were at Dominus. And now I remember back, so three Christmases ago, we usually opened Dominus and uh, we enjoyed the, the 96, 97. So it was just, it was funny. Ah. Those were the, the years you were the, the winemaker at the time. Exactly. Yeah. So the first one was still fermented at um, uh, Rombauer. But the second one was fermented at the new winery in, um, you know, in, in at, at Dominus uh, property. So you mentioned the 260 cases year one. I mean, how did those first couple of years go for you? Uh, I can't imagine you were two in the green, were you? I can't imagine what? You, you, you guys were very profitable at the time? Oh, well, you know, there's, you have to, and, and there's nothing like 
for learning business, like running your own business. You have to distinguish between profitability and cash flow. And um, yeah, we were profitable. The measure of profitability is if you pay taxes and we pay taxes every (laughs) single year. However, as grow, then you're investing in inventory and that's when you could use some more, um, more cash. So yeah, I still remember, I think we've, I think in the first two vintages, because our single vineyard Chardonnays spend like two winters in barrels, so a long time, like 20 months. So they don't get sold until two years after um, after they're made. And so that's that cost, that carrying time, cellaring time costs. So I think we invested $90,000 over over the first two vintages. And, and I still remember we sold the first vintage and made $56,000. Um, and then I had to pay 40% tax on that. So anyway, yeah, profitability is a different thing than, than, um, than cash flow. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned you, you'll never learn more than when you run your own business. I mean, there had to have been some incredibly difficult, difficult times though in those early days, weren't there? We were, we had more debt, uh, twice in our growth spurts than than probably we were comfortable with um i'm <laughs> you know i'm i'm a wine i'm a winemaker and thank god for my wife and business partner i mean we own the company there's no other partners or investors so we've grown it together and now other than the now there's no debt other than the um, mortgage on our on our property that we bought um but uh, thank God that she's, you know, she's my chief enabler. And, I, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm a winemaker, not a spreadsheet guy. So uh, I, I grew probably a little faster than, we sh- than, than, than would have been prudent. You mentioned growing a little bit faster. What, what are you guys up to today in terms of t- total cases? We're, we're, we're about 35,000 cases. So th- that's, a, that's a large, small winery. Okay. Um, I mean, I think people would consider a five to 10,000 case winery a small winery. Um, so we're a large, small winery. And, and in both senses, I mean, one in terms of actual volume, but two in the sense that we're family owned and operated. Um, and we're, we're blessed that uh, now that, that Claire and Alan have, have joined the company. So there's a next generation um, gonna, gonna take over. And, and we're blessed that we, uh, we I guess I've, I've hired well. We have really good, really good small team um, that have been with us 16 years, 13 years, 13 years, 12 years, 10 years. Um, people, we we tend to hire. I hope judiciously, and then we treat people really well, and and they tend to tend to stay. Fortunately, um, I think a lot of you know. Uh, I can say I've worked for a number of really wealthy people who tend to regard um, their employees as being lucky to have a job with them. And Carla and I feel the other way. We're we're lucky to have uh, you know our team uh, help grow Ramey Wine Cellars and and uh, and be dedicated to to the, this group proposition essentially. No, I love that approach and in, in what you and Carla have done there. And you mentioned your two kids. What is it like for them growing up? I mean, they must have quite a palate from a young age here, huh? Well, that's one of the things, you know, I, I think neither neither one is going to get an, a degree in enology. Um, 
but they have been tasting wine with us since they were six years old. And so they have really good palates. And um, they not only have tasted, well, you know, I mean, they barrel tasted at DRC when they were uh, 14 and 16 years old, you know. (laughs) (laughs) They have been tasting the great wines of the world their entire life. But almost more than that, they also because of that exposure, recognize bad wine too, or mediocre wine or insipid wine. And, and, you know, that sort of background, uh, you know, not every kid coming out of Davis or Fresno or Cornell, um, has that, has that background or exposure to the a broad range of the, the wines of the world and not just California. We, you know, I've always, um, I've always enjoyed wines from all over the world. Today, the focus remains, uh, in addition to California, Oregon, um, uh, France, and, and Italy principally, sometimes a little bit of Spain. I mean, you have me salivating over here just talking about this and and how fortunate they were to grow up into that. Any new um, different areas that you think are might be up and coming uh, in the wine industry here? Well, I, I think there is an, an interest in... Um, sort of what we call alternative varieties, you know, there's a, there's a, a very small resurgence of like dry Chenin Blanc or, you know, uh, Godejo or Rio, Ribola Giala or, you know, uh, Vermentino or things like that. We started uh, a, a second, a new brand of a companion label, Sidebar Cellars. And, we sourced a little a kerner from from Lodi, I, and I love the kerners from Alto Adige, so we're making a little bit of that. Um, I think there is an interest in in that it, on the behalf, on the part of producers, some producers as well as some of the psalms, you know, some of the wine bars in in Manhattan and and London and and San Francisco, and and that's a good thing. That's great. Uh, I mean, who wants to drink the same thing all the time? That said, um, for the American market, I mean, it's still Cabernet and Chardonnay for the most part, Pinot Noir uh, and Sauvignon Blanc sort of secondarily. Uh, it just, that's just, you know, people, people like what they're comfortable with, but in the, on the production and, and buying side, uh, restaurant buying side, I think there's some interest in these other varieties. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you just got to get out of your comfort zone and, and try some of these amazing wines the world's offering. I mean, yeah. in your wildest dreams, did you guys ever think you'd be as large and influential as you are today? Oh, I, well, it's not, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure. Well, thank you for implying as much. No, I mean, I, you're incredibly humble, but I mean, you've worked with, with some of the greatest uh, wines in all the world and, and you do have tremendous impact in the wine industry. So I, I know your early days, uh, I'm just, I'm just curious if you ever thought that maybe that would come down the pipeline. Oh, I don't know. I, I mean, you know, you, you, you don't think like that. I, I, but I do think that, um, I mean, my, my wife would say I'm an Aquarian, you know, so I'm a, I'm a bit of an independent thinker. And, um, I, I think what, what progress I've, I've made and, and, you know, happily shared with uh, my colleagues, not everybody, you know, there's a, there's, there's a, you know, a dozen different ways to make wine and and there's no one right way necessarily, but, um, things like, you know, Zelma and I, uh, 
introduced oxidized juice to uh, in, in white wine making brown juice to, to California um, which some people use and, and others don't other, there's there's a whole it seems like the younger generation sometimes has to learn everything for themselves so I think particularly younger winemakers are, are back to some green juice stuff um, but you know lease contact uh, native yeast you know, not using commercial yeast. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've been able to think independently, I think, rather than, uh, yeah, just following along. Sometimes, sometimes it seems to me that um, many university graduate winemakers are more afraid of something going wrong in their wines and in their winemaking than they are dedicated to making something go right or to improve something and I've all I've just always been pushing 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 to to make improvements to, to make better wine in any number of different ways any idea where that philosophy or, or thought process came from in part I I would credit um, aside from my uh, naturally Aquarian uh, inquisitiveness I think I was fortunate enough to get when I got out of grad school at Davis to, and after my year overseas, uh, France and Australia, uh, to get the job that I wanted, which was assistant winemaker to Zelma Long at Simi Winery. She had just left Mandavi and um, at the time, so 78, 79, 80, everybody that was at Davis got out and got full charge winemaking jobs. Now, now that doesn't happen. You know, you get it, you get a degree, and then you spend three years dragging hoses, and you 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 know you work six harvests around the world, and then you maybe get a, a an enologist position. But I knew that I did not know how to make wine, so I wanted to learn from somebody who I thought did. And because of that, you know, and here I would credit um, Robert Mandavi, uh, who who Zalma had worked for. Um, they always had an incredible experimental bent and a, a focus on international wine styles and, and analysis. And I was the beneficiary of that Mandavi um, experimental continuous improvement um, impetus or, or, or operational, you know, anyway, yeah. <laughs> I mean, when, when you're in your, your mad scientist phase, what exactly are you looking for in just a great glass of wine? Oh, you know, that's that's a good question. Okay, uh, obviously deliciousness. But here's where I would distinguish what, you know, in a lot of a lot of my colleagues or, or, or professors, you know, like the Ann Noble was a professor while I was at Davis and she and a, and a, a grad student came up with the aroma wheel. And, and I unless they're bad aromas or tastes, I really don't pay a lot of attention to the way a wine smells. To me, it's all a, a physical sensation, a tactility. Uh, that that wine in, in your mouth, it, it has to be delicious and it has to feel good. And that's a tactile thing. It's a function of, of the alcohol, and the tannins and the acid and any sugar that may or may not be there. Um, that and and what what I look for is a is a silky, a really pleasurable silkiness. You know, it's like we'd rather wear 
silk than burlap. And that's the same thing with wine. You, you, you know, who wants to put burlap in? <laughs> you want silk in your mouth. And that's a tactility. Not, I, it, it doesn't matter if, the, if, it, if it smells or tastes like bananas or pears or apples. Or, I really don't care about that. And I don't write, I'm not good at writing flavor descriptors. But I almost, I almost, maybe because of my time in France, I almost like the old way of um, pre-university way of describing wines, the French way where the wine could be masculine or feminine or, you know, it could be a voluptuous wine or, 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 or an austere wine. Uh, you know, uh, scientists don't like those words because they're not measurable, but I think they're more descriptive and more evocative. I mean, you've tasted some of the greatest wines of all time. And, and one of the great things I love about sitting down and having a glass of wine and opening a nice bottle is you can remember that moment in time. I, I mentioned those bottles of Dominus earlier, and there's certain things that just make that moment so much more special, opening one of those bottles. And what's one of the most memorable bottles you've opened, whether it be around a, a special moment or just a, a bottle you thought was the greatest you've ever tasted? Well... You know, Sean, I'm I'm 67, and so my memory my memory's starting to get. I, I used to be able to remember every, just every glass, every bottle. So I'm going to go with short-term memory, and I'm going to say recently, um, before the Giants game yesterday, at uh, with, with my friends at Boulevard Restaurant, I ordered a, a bottle of uh, 2000 Hermitage from uh, from uh, Chav, and. Uh, John Lancaster, the, the wine guy there who was taking care of us, he said that that, would, that came straight from the cellars, the Jean-Louis Chave, um, who's married to an, uh, an American, um, uh, got him some, some lots straight from the cellar. So that was uh, yesterday's memorable wine. I mean, that's not a bad way to spend a Wednesday afternoon, is it? <laughs> we, we don't get to the game until, until the second inning. <laughs> Good for you guys. So you mentioned your afternoon yesterday. What's a typical day looking like for you? I'm sorry? What's a typical day like for you now? Oh, I try to uh, keep them as atypical as possible. Um, you know, um, again, I, I'm I'm getting to the point where I'm delegating um, more. Um, and I, I it seems like I end up uh, talking to people like you a, a fair bit. Um uh, I, I'm on a couple of boards now, several boards. So I have a, a on the one board of directors. I have a conference call at one o'clock. At at two o'clock today, uh, we have um, I think 16 German uh, wine buyers and and press who are um, visiting with us for 90 minutes as part of a wine institute tour. Um, so yeah, it, it it varies a lot. Um, so much so that unfortunately my the, the paperwork on my desk seems to just be piling up in a state of disarray. So I, I taste a lot and, um, and then I'm out in the vineyards a, a little bit too, but that's, that's being passed off to Claire, our daughter. So, um, not in the vineyards as much as I used to be. I mean, we know, we know your day is hectic and you're jam packed. So I'm curious, you got one final meal left. It can't be in any of the wines you produce. What are you guys going to open? Oh, well, these days for me, you know, after for about 15 years, I was on a big Southern Rhone kick. Um, you know, when you start out and you're poor, you, 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 you buy you buy Cote de Rhone. Um, and then um, 
then you start stepping up to Resto and then Vaqueras and then Gigundas. And finally, you feel you can afford, you know, $45 for a Chateauneuf to pop. For some reason, about 10 years ago now, I discovered Brunello. And um, much to my wife's regret, <laughs> finds Brunello and Italian reds in general to be too acidic and too tannic. God, I just love the spiciness of, of the Brunello expression of Sangiovese. And when, you know, our wine ends up being sold in, in first-class restaurants all over the world. And so when I come back from a trip, um, we've been eating lunch and dinner, you know, in these fancy restaurants. And um, really what I, at the end or when I get back, all I want is I want a little two-course Italian meal. I want, you know, I want maybe a Caesar salad or some carpaccio, and then I want a nice plate of pasta and a, and a bottle of Brunello. And then <laughs> I'd be happy, right? You're a simple man. Well, David, I, you're someone I've looked up to for a long time. I really do appreciate and, and cherish this call I just had with you. Where can the listener stay connected with you? Well, um, uh, our, our website is uh, ramywine.com. So one word, singular, R-A-M-E-Y-W-I-N-E.com. And of course, we're on uh, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of that. Um, I'm a, I'm a I'm a periodic poster. I'm, I I respond uh, f- frequently to um, to posts, but. Um, we have Alexandra keeps uh, people up to date on Facebook and Instagram and, and Twitter with with our goings on. Great. Well, we're definitely going to have all that linked up in the show notes. Make sure the listeners stay connected with you. But David, once again, thank you so much for joining us on What Got You There. Hey, Sean, you know, you're, you're, you're a pretty good interviewer. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate that. If you're like me and love to travel, then listen up. Are you looking to get outside your comfort zone in 2018? Are you tired of the monotony of your nine to five job with no adventure? Do you want to connect with new people on Epic Adventures? If so, then Globekick is what you're looking for. Globekick is redefining travel for the millennial generation. Globekick knows that memorable travel is built on the quality of the experience you have and the people you connect with along the way. That's why their members can choose from curated travel experiences throughout the year with like-minded people. Unlike other travel providers, Globekick members get to know each other through a private social network before choosing when and where they travel together. In 2018, they've teamed up with partners around the world to feature a Sahara Desert camping trip out of Morocco in May, a boating journey through the Sandblast Islands in the Caribbean in August, and a volunteering trip to an elephant sanctuary outside of Cambodia in December. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then head to globekick.com and enter WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. That's globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.